Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today by Aaron Helms, the executive director for the Woodrow Project, Recovery Housing for Women. Joining Erin and myself will be Gina Bonaminio. She is a recovery support specialist. Also joining us will be Andrea Kotnick, who's a resident of Erin's. Welcome, ladies. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to be here. It's great to have you. So, Erin, we're going to start with you. Um, How did you happen to get involved in recovery housing? So after working at inpatient treatment centers in Minnesota and in Ohio, really recognizing the significant lack of recovery housing for both men and women, but more women. Uh, There was no place to to refer, refer women. That was a tremendous difficult time and time again that we just kept finding women would do really well in treatment and then they would go home and come back 60 days later relapsing and these were people that really wanted to make changes and so many places outside of ohio had different recovery housing in florida california and started doing some research i went to my family and had a plan Previously, I had some experience in finance, so put together a a business plan with the support of my family, both financially and being very honest, emotionally, they they were very supportive of of my dreams, said, let's give this a shot. So we went to the um, city of Lakewood and sat down with them. Our first meeting did not not go very well. Um, It lasted about three minutes and they said, no, this is not going to happen in in our city. So uh, went back and did some research and it was the best thing that could have happened because we reached out to Ohio Recovery Housing and the National Alliance of Recovery Residents and found a wealth of resources and really educated ourselves on fair housing. And they were beyond receptive when we went back to the city of Lakewood. And they said, this is, you're right. This is what you can do. We got a letter from them and the city of Lakewood has been fantastic from the mayor all the way down to the building department. They really, they needed some education as well. So it's been a great experience. Our neighbors have been fantastic. It was just really a, um, it was a lesson for for everybody. 
So we. When did you do that, if I could ask? March of 2014. Oh, okay. And then in August of 2014, we found a house. Uh, we put in a bid and it was accepted. September 14th, September 14th of 2014, we opened and five days later, we were on a wait list. Wow. Yes. Huh. How many rooms? Eight. Eight. And we have been on a wait list ever since. Hmm. There is absolutely a shortage of recovery housing for women. Yeah. Quality recovery housing. So a couple of follow-ups on that. Number one, why the disparity between men and women in terms of housing? I, I believe that there is a, a, a very big stigma that women aren't alcoholics or addicts and that they will just go home to their families and that their families will take take care of them or that it just doesn't apply to women is, is part of it. I also believe that in the, the treatment community a little bit that people think that women have more issues than what men do or women have children and they don't want to, to, to deal with that component. Okay, it's um, a little more complex, yes. I guess, yes. providing for their needs. Yes. And, and certainly there's no doubt about that. Right. Okay, all right, so I get that. Um, so where from there? At that point, we I decided to resign from my inpatient counseling position and um, really jump in with both feet. Um, I was fortunate because of family support to be able to do that. And, and really, it was necessary to really be able to be the house manager, to learn the entire process. It, it, was, it was necessary. And to be able to learn how to manage the house and to network within the community and the greater community because of working so much with inpatient treatment centers. I didn't know much about drug court. I didn't know much about job and family services. There were a whole lot of treatment, um, not treatment. Um, there were a whole lot of social services that I had not dealt with because where I had previously worked was Glen Bay and previous to that was out in Minnesota at Hazelden. So I didn't I didn't have a whole lot of experience working with some of the social services. So living at the house, I got that experience of how to help women navigate through social services because sometimes people need that help. Sometimes people have family support that they don't need that or sometimes people have jobs and they don't need that, but sometimes they do. Quite often. They yes. need a lot of support yes. with many different services, right? Right, right. Yeah. right. Okay, next let's talk about the options that you have when you're considering housing like this. Yes. Um, what options are out there and what was the process, Andrea, that you went through in evaluating your options when it was time for you to look for housing such as this? You know, the decision was really made for me. Um, I was in inpatient treatment at Glen Bay and because of Aaron's connections to the people that still worked there, um, the suggestion was made because a room opened up and the suggestion was made very strongly that I look into it and pretty much that I go. So um, I got lucky, honestly. Um, you know, I do see some housing out there that maybe doesn't turn out as solid results as ours does. But um, yeah, luckily just with Aaron's connections to the treatment center where I was, that was how we kind of came to the decision. 
Okay. So um, let's follow up on your story just a little bit. How long were you in Glen Bay, if I could ask? Uh, 27 days. 27 days. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what brought you there? Um, Mostly alcohol, also pills. Um, You know, it just got to a point where I was not functioning as a person anymore. And I actually was trying outpatient treatments, but that just wasn't enough for me. Um, And with my family, we made the decision to go into inpatient. Okay. Um, how long um, uh, in recovery? Um, I had 11 months yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, now let's go back to the options then that one would have if, uh, in, in your case, you were very fortunate It was, and, and the perfect situation arose. What are the options that uh, women look at when, when it comes to this time? So really, Ohio Recovery Housing has three different levels, level one, level two, and level three. Level three is what used to be thought of as like a halfway house. They, they really focus on life skills as part of the, the program. People that have not had experience budgeting, really have not been able to cook or clean for themselves, or the, the really basic things like mac and cheese and spaghetti are really all that they can do for themselves or just really have very poor or low life skills that they're pretty, they're, they're very much struggling at just making it through the day. That's somebody that really should be looking at a level three recovery home. A level two is much more suited for somebody that has been able to hold down a part-time job, has been able to somewhat function on the outside, um, on the outside world for, for some time. Um, so can we define that a little bit more somewhat function? So, so I've been able to maintain their, their life, um, with, with a job have, have been able to balance a checkbook, uh, have been able to, you know, aren't as culturally enmeshed in the, the drug culture or aren't as culturally enmeshed in, um, the, so they didn't need quite as many services really to support them in their recovery. Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay, great. Um, then the the level one is really for somebody that has, has maintained sobriety for like six months. So really a level one is for somebody that has either been at a really long inpatient stay. Some of the, and you don't see this typically in Ohio, but some there are some programs that are six to nine months long that... They've really been able to maintain a long period of sobriety. That's going to be a level one that they've been able to already build a bit of a support system. They they probably have some type of a sponsor. They have some type of working knowledge of steps if they're in a 12 step program and they they have a good step up. They, They possibly have a job already. That's going to be your level one. They've built some nice recovery capital. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Gina, so back when you were making these choices as far as housing was concerned, what did you look at? What were you faced with as you were going through this? And we should maybe back up just a little bit. Let's get a little bit of your story. Okay, um, so I am from a small town west of Cleveland. It's called Amherst, Ohio. Um, And I, you know, heroin addiction brought me to uh, Glen Bay where I, well, I had been a treatment previously, um, and it just, I was not ready. It didn't stick. Whatever the reason, I didn't stay sober. Can I ask you, how old are you? 23. Wow. Um, so I went to Glen Bay, 
um, wow, September 11th, 2013. And um, <clears throat> so when I went to look at, you know, with my counselor, it was suggested, like Andra, that I go to recovery housing. What brought you to the point where you said, you know, I need help? Oh, boy. <laughs> Am I being uh, very brutally honest? Please. Um, so I had always held down a job in my active addiction. You know, I showed up for work every day, no matter what. Um, and I got fired from that job. I was a waitress, so I always had money. And um, I, so I was fired. I knew I was not going to have money anymore. And I told my mother, God bless her heart, that if she did not give me the money, you know, my money that she was in control of, that I was going to go be a stripper. Right. There was a bank account. I think money from my grandfather or so, so it was an inheritance of some kind that she was the, um, the executor of yeah. hmm. and I wasn't 21 yet. So I could not sign it out or touch it by right. any means. Okay. And that is, she said, you do whatever you have to do. I'm not giving you this money because she knew that if she did, I would, she would, you know, that money would have killed me. Um, when I, it was, it was really the fear of not getting drugs that drove me to treatment. And I didn't, I was done, you know, I was just, I was done. I was done trying. I was done, you know, seeing what I could steal done, you know, what I could pawn, you know, what loans I could take out. Um, I was just tired. How far did your drug use go? Did you, did you shoot? Yeah, I did. Um, my my brother died April thirtieth, two thousand thirteen. Um, my and condolences. Thank you. Um, about a week after that is I was I was doing heroin for a while before this, but a week after that is when I started shooting heroin. Um, what did your brother die from? Um, he actually died of a car accident. He was addicted to opioids, but he died in a car accident. So. Um, that is really what led me to Glen Bay. I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, I was in there for 26 days. And, you know, when I got to the point to uh, start looking for, you know, a place to go afterwards, um, my counselor had two places in mind. And um, it just happened by chance that I went into the Scarborough house. So that turned out to be a great choice. It did. Yeah. It Why did. was that? Um, it was really what I needed at the time. I didn't even know how to brush my teeth on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, girls were just there. And, you know, they said, like, like you know, let's go to these meetings and let's do this. And, um, you know, they kind of, they taught me how to be a human being again. Um, there was the, the house mom at the time, house manager at the time, was an older lady. And she was not in recovery. She had been the house mom for 20 plus years. And um, every morning she would come at 9.30, she'd come upstairs and knock on our bedroom doors and say, it's time to get up. You're not in active addiction anymore. You can't sleep all day. Get up, do your chore, go find a job. And um, she was a big help in, you know, teaching me how to be an adult because, you know, I had never um, been an adult, really. You know, I was 20 years old. I had been using drugs since I was 11 and um, 11. 
drinking and, you know, pot mm-hmm. and all that. Um, so I never really knew how to, I didn't know how to make coffee in a regular coffee pot um, until I got to Scarborough. And I didn't know how to do my dishes after I used them. You know, they would sit and pile for days and I wouldn't do them. And I learned how to do just those simple things that, you know, um, people who don't struggle with addiction maybe take for granted. I didn't know how to do those things. And I was taught how to do that there. Wow. That's powerful. So um, let's talk a little bit about the people that are in your recovery housing and the type of community that's that's formed over time there it's amazing it's amazing to watch the a little bit of what gina was just talking about there are women that come into the house that have never ridden the bus and they don't have a car and they need to get to their intensive outpatient treatment and another woman will say i have never i had never ridden the bus before either and i'm going to show you how to do it and they will get on the bus in the morning and take the person, walk them up to the intensive outpatient treatment center and say, this is where it is. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. They will, and that just happens naturally, spontaneously. They, there's, there's a little bit of discussion about what service work is and how to help a fellow human being, how to help another person in recovery. You coach them up. Yes. And there is a great deal of discussion about what service work means and how helping another alcoholic addict helps yourself as well. And it's really wonderful to see it in action. Going to meetings together, doing things like carving pumpkins, those type of activities that people sometimes just take for granted. People that have been very meshed in drug culture, active alcoholism, have missed out on for a really long period of time. That genuine belly laughter is seen just by people sitting out on the front porch watching the sunset. It's really amazing to see the different activities. There is There was a whole group of women that went camping uh, one summer. They, um, they, they've done things like go to Cedar Point together. They've done different um, activities with volunteering down at the RNC last weekend. They got to go into the wellness rooms and talk to the Secret Service. I mean, some of those really amazing activities that you just don't get to see um, people in active addiction in sitting at a bar store, sitting in a bar. They would never have those opportunities if they weren't in recovery. So seeing that happen is is makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, that's really got to be heartwarming for you really and is. gratifying as as well as, yeah, just tremendous. That's that's great. Um, so tell me a little bit about why the Woodrow Project is maybe different from other housing options that women have. Why it's better? Why, why, it's, why it works? And, and maybe, you know, without naming names, why some others haven't worked? And I'll, I'll go ahead and throw that out to, to the group here. Well, I think from from my perspective, there's a couple of different things that we really try and implement. And the two main priorities that we have are structure and support. You can't have one without the other. Structure is, if you just have structure, that is jail. And we have, I think, 
clearly proven that jail does not keep people sober. And if you just have support, that is what a family does. And while families love people, they also oftentimes cannot keep somebody sober either. So you really need the combination of the two. So we really work with people on their recovery plans of supporting them to getting to a medical doctor, taking care of their dental work, getting food assistance if they need that, really taking care of those responsibilities that we need to become an adult and the, the support with it, not just saying, oh, you need to go out and get on the bus, really talking with them about how you go and get on a bus. And I know that that may seem really simplistic to a lot of people out there, but it can be really terrifying if you've never ridden a bus before. So that, but holding people accountable as well as supporting them. So, so that is really the, the difference between a, the Woodrow Project and a lot of places out there. That they, a lot of places out there, it's simply a place to live and there's other people in there that are sober. Okay. We, we provide a program as well. So collectively, you've got a lot of a lot of experience in this field of of you know um, determining you know what is really good in a housing program versus not. So if someone were not looking at your program, but a bunch of programs out there, mm-hmm. um, what would be some of the most important criteria that you would consider, as well as you, Gina and Andrea? Well, I think one of the the main criteria criteria is how long are people staying? If there's a constant turnover, there's something going on. I'm talking about residents. Oh. If there's lots of people in and out and they always have openings, there's there's a problem because the reason that there's always openings is because either people are always relapsing or people are always breaking some type of rule. There's just there's not that continuity. The other part of looking at good looking for good recovery housing is how do the staff treat the residents? Do the residents seem happy or does it seem to be um, more like an institution? This is somebody's home. It should look like a home. It shouldn't feel like an institution. Okay. What else? Care to add to that, Andrea? Yeah, that was um, that was really big for me. I think that was one of the reasons my counselor didn't push other houses on me so much, because you know when this opening happened, she said this place does not get openings. You are going to look at this, and of course, like for me, I'm looking at it. You know, do they let you have a car? Are you allowed to have a job? Because some of the you know halfway houses, things like that, you are actually not allowed to have a job because you have to stay within that community. So for me, those were important things. Um, and like Aaron said, you know, I, I wanted it to still feel like a home. Like I didn't want to feel like I was in an institution. Um, I wanted it to be somewhere where I lived. So those were, those were huge for me. Okay. Gina, anything to add to that? Yeah, I will actually, I'll add something. Um, I, it may be to the previous question. Um, I just want to share, um, some experiences. So I went through Scarborough and it was, it was wonderful. Um, and it helped me, you know, it, it brought me to sobriety. Um, and so when I, you know, moved out of Scarborough, et cetera, you know, journeyed on my way, um, you know, there's, there's a few women's sober houses around here and, or in the Cleveland area as a whole. 
And, um, you know, you meet people and hear about different houses and, you know, some good things, some bad things. Um, and, you know, something that I guess is slash was important to me is stability. Um, similar to what Aaron said. Um, but I guess for an example, I, you know, I knew, I know a couple girls who went through a, a house that, um, you know, people just were relapsing, which that, that happens. You are with newly sober women that will happen. Um, however, these people weren't found out for two months. They were, they were using drugs in the recovery housing for two months and nobody knew because there were no drug tests. No tests? There were no nightly check-ins to make sure that everybody was home at curfew. Um, you know, there was no making sure that girls were staying in contact with their support group because, you know, that is something that's necessary. Um, you know, like Aaron said about the, you know, teaching somebody how to ride a bus. If, if I would have came to Cleveland and somebody told me to ride a bus to Job and Family Services, I would have rode a bus to Westlake and had my mom pick me up to take me home because I couldn't do it. I absolutely, my fear would have been too great. I've never been to the city and, you know, that happens. Um, and I, I probably wouldn't have stayed sober hmm. just for that simple bus ride. Yeah. So can you cite anything to steer clear of? What are those things that you know about there that... Well, you know, if they're doing that, again, not to name names, um, it just absolutely, that's an automatic disqualifier in your own minds. I would say for me personally, one of the things to steer clear of is recovery houses that have males and free females living together. That just doesn't work. Um, men need to stick with men and women need to stick with women. That's that's a really big that's that it's it's imperative um and that that just goes so much to the nature of the disease it's for whatever reason it just seems to work better um and and for and treatments it is a bit different but when you're living with somebody and you are um there's shared rooms the recovery housing you're you're when you're hanging out at night watching TV, it's that's your time to relax and just be yourself. If you're living with people of the opposite sex, a lot of times you're always having to be on and dressed up and whatnot. It, that just doesn't seem to work. So that would be the one key that I would say to steer clear off. Yeah, that would seem to be a no-brainer, but yet, yeah. and I hadn't heard of you know, mixed housing that way, but there's a lot of it, is there? Relatively... Not, not, not a ton, but not it does. Ton, but it happens. But it does happen, yes. Yeah. Okay. What else? I guess, um, you know, seeing if I, you know, were to go out and see girls from a house out at 1230 at night. Um, That's a red flag. When's your curfew? Her. Yeah. Right. Why are you out this late? There's, I mean... I'm a firm believer, you know, almost three years sober, I'm a firm believer. Nothing good happens after like 11 p.m. There's no reason for me to be out that late. Um, you know, of course, with some exceptions, um, you know, and why isn't, you know, why isn't anyone making sure that you are following the rules of your house? You know, where is the um, structure that Aaron talked about earlier? Yeah. Okay. Do houses... Um 
basically have a philosophy to housing houses in this area and help me with this because maybe it's just out of my just lack of knowledge in this. Are some of them abstinence houses only and that's that um, versus medication assisted their uh, treatment? So most of them are. Uh, most and of them are. That yeah. is a mostly because the there's not a whole lot of treatment centers in this area that are doing medication assisted treatment. So there's actually very few that are doing medication assisted treatment. And most of the homes are not set up for medication assisted treatment. There are some areas that have done medication assisted treatment and there are some that are doing it well. There's a place down in Springfield, Ohio that has a great program. They have it set up very well. They're doing it the right way. With medication assisted treatment, there, it needs to be done the right way for the people living in the house, as well as the integrity of the program. But if we, as recovery housing providers, just say, here's your medication, we expect you to just handle it on your own, somebody that is very newly sober, that's just, it, it's not a good idea. It's a recipe and, for disaster, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And recovery housing operators cannot dispense medication. We are not licensed to. You have to have a, I mean, you basically have to be a pharmacy to dispense medication or a nurse or a doctor. So there are some ways to do that. There's a place down, like I said, in Springfield, Ohio, that they have a treatment center that is connected to the recovery house, that the treatment center dispenses the Suboxone on a daily basis. And then on the weekends, they go to a pharmacy and the pharmacy dispenses the uh, medication. There's not really many places in, there's actually one place in all of Northeast Ohio that I can think of that allows medication assisted treatment and it is attached to a treatment center as well. So we need funding to be able to do it the right way because if not, it is going to be disastrous and it's going to end up with a terrible reputation and I can see lawsuits and things going really bad. Yeah, really important to do it the right way, no doubt. Um, so this morning I was down in Akron and uh, I had the pleasure of working with um, the uh, one of the um, leaders of their program that uses Vivitrol in a big way. And it was a stark contrast um, between their numbers and their success rate in their first year of using Vivitrol versus Suboxone or methadone. And uh, they, in, in the, the first year, actually, they, very small numbers here, so really small sample. Uh, but they had uh, 10 people through their Vivitrol program. And, and I believe that they had one, one that uh, had a relapse, and that was about it. Versus, uh, it was, well, the numbers were just about the opposite for uh, Suboxone and uh, Methadone. So just that may be anecdotal, uh, but I, I think the overall point, at least from what I heard from them, as well as others, is Vivitrol really has promise because it's a 30-day shot. And now you, you take that one thing out of the equation, which is relying on your patient to every single day to take that. Well, that's too small of a window. You know, they can go out and they can use and, you know, they can think, you know, triggers go off and boom, they're off in a different world before you know it. 
So, and I guess that's a little bit of I'm going down the editorial road with this, but I, I'm really encouraged by what I hear about Vivitrol. Absolutely. And I will say <clears throat> virtually every house in Northeast Ohio will take Vivitrol. I think I've gotten very used to talking about medication-assisted treatment with just methadone and Suboxone. So Vivitrol is 100%. I don't know of a house that won't take Vivitrol. But because Vivitrol does not have an opiate in it and there's no dispensing of it uh, on site, you have to go to a doctor's office to get it. Everybody takes Vivitrol. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're... I think everybody's on board with Vivitrol. It's we're, we're really happy with the the progress that um, we're seeing with with the residents that are taking using the Vivitrol shot. The problem that we run into is one: there's not very many doctors that will um, give the shot, and two, the expense. So whether yeah. or not it is it's covered by insurance. Yeah. So eleven hundred bucks a month. Right. Yeah. So unless yeah. somebody's in a drug court program or their insurance happens to be one of the ones that will cover it, yeah. or they financially can just afford it out of pocket, we're, 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 our, car, our hands are kind of tied. Yeah. So that's one of those, though, that, boy, oh, boy, it, it has so much more promise. Yes. That, geez, it's... Um, anyhow, um, so that was my bad, though, as far as my question was concerned, because I, I, yeah. I led you in the wrong oh. direction on that. So, yeah. so that's great to know. Because it has so much promise and, and there's no restrictions there. The housing for you, uh, for the Woodrow Project, wide open as far as Vivitrol is yes. concerned. That's great. Good. Okay. Um, so what are the most important points our listeners should know about how they can support a loved one who's in recovery housing? The one thing that I would say to a loved one that has someone living in recovery housing is allow them to make that transition into recovery housing. They are going to be overwhelmed by the outside world. They are going to be overwhelmed by all of the feelings. And as much as they want to make everything right with their family on the first day, that's not possible. And anything that they can say to you isn't going to be enough. And anything that they can do to make it right can only be done in small increments. So allow the transition process to happen in a small bit by bit manner. Don't have these grand expectations that because somebody went to inpatient treatment for 30, 60, 90 days, that they're going to come out and be this absolutely healed person it's going to take time. So allow them, you know, take them out to dinner once or twice a week. Go to the grocery store once a week. Do small activities for shorter periods of time and build up to longer, maybe day outings or after 30, 60, 90, 60 days doing it overnight. But but not, I, I would really encourage people to not be overwhelming to that that loved one give them some time because if not expectations will not be met and it it typically is a recipe for a disaster gina would you have anything to add to that um yeah actually absolutely um so something that just and i'll just come right out and say it rent money my parents paid my rent at the sober house the whole time that i was there um, is that a good thing? That is a good thing. 
Um, I didn't have a job when I got out. My reasoning, you know, I could have said, well, I don't have a job. I can't afford the rent. I can't go to recovery housing. Um, and where would I be? Who knows? Um, and, and then on the cross section of that, um, I was a very spoiled daughter. You know, they, they took care of all my needs and most of my wants. Um, and, and I'm so grateful, you know, I have two loving, loving parents. Um, however, when I was a month and a half sober and I wanted to get my nails done, they didn't have to pay for that. You know, I could have waited until I earned my own money to get my own nails done. Um, and, uh, there was, I'll add this in really quick. There was a time right after I moved out of, um, recovery housing that I wanted to get a tattoo. My mom was still, my parents were still helping me financially. My, my mom is against tattoos and, uh, you know, we got into an argument, but then we talked and, um, you know, because she didn't help me, I was able to see how selfish of a person I was being that she was giving me money to help me buy food, you know, pay my bills, whatever. And then I was going to turn around and use the money that I made to get a tattoo. Yet while I'm still taking her money, that's, you know, that's not okay. Um, and it's, it's little stuff like that, that, you know, taught me, you know, not to be so selfish. Like that's a, that's a little life lesson. You know what I mean? That for somebody maybe wouldn't seem so huge, but for me, it was like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. And, you know, I still, I never got that tattoo. So. <laughs> Pretty good. Andrea? Yeah, money was a huge thing for me. Um, I'm very quick to feel guilty and to a point where, look, I would use that kind of as maybe an excuse to, you know, my emotions are overwhelming me, I'm going to use. Um, so when I got out of treatment, I no longer had a job, but my parents just kept reiterating, don't let money ever be the reason that you don't do something that will help you recover. Um, you know, they, I only started paying my own rent, what, like three, four months ago, um, because I, I finally got a job and was able to save up enough money. Cause you know, I also have you know, a car payment, things like that, that my parents let me take care of those things first and, um, <coughs> covered my rent while I was doing that. Um, and another really small thing is, um, and this was something I hadn't thought about until I went into recovery housing, but advice for people that are going, do not go home first, go straight to the house. Um, that's not something I had even thought about. I had just assumed, you know, oh, I'll go home a couple days, see my family, pack my things, just relax. And they told me, no, absolutely not. You are going straight there. Your parents can bring you your things later. Um, one girl that lives in the house said she did go home for a night and she immediately regretted it because everything you learn there can be undone so quickly by those triggers, by if you used in your room, if you used with your siblings, anything like that. You can, I mean, it can just go away in a heartbeat. So, you know, there's a reason these things are step downs. So you should go straight into that step. Okay. Um. So talking about step, that leads me to my next question, which is 12 step to do that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Believers in that big believers yes. in that the yes. 12 step program. Yes. Okay. All right. Very good. Any comments on that? And so um, one thing that I want to discuss is 
is that, and this is kind of a side to an aside to recovery housing, but um, 12 step, it seems old school. You two are young. Is it, why is this happening? Um, why does it work? So I don't, it, why it works for me, and I'm not a representative of a 12 step community by any means, or I'm just going to say why it worked for me, why it works, continues to work for me, um, because it's, it's simple. It is do this, you know, um, I guess this is hard. Follow this program and this is the freedom you can find is how, is how it was explained to me. And I followed the program and continue to do so. And it continues to work. So you feel like it's kind of a paint by numbers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yes. Okay. And when I was an inpatient counselor, somebody had asked me, why do I continue to go to meetings? And I said, you know, I don't know what would happen if I stopped going to meetings. And after, like two years later, I'm like, I know exactly what would happen. I would not be happy. I would most definitely relapse within a fairly short period of time. And I would just be miserable. So for me, it's way easier to continue doing what works. And I enjoy them. I, I, I have a community of people that I absolutely love. Going to meetings allows me to have a life that is beyond anything that I ever thought that I would have. Okay. Something that we haven't had a chance to talk about is your new role, Gina. Oh, well. That's exciting. It's it's very exciting. Um, so I guess like really quick like backstory. Um, I dropped or I was kicked out of a community college um, for not attending classes, failing. What I don't remember really. I was just kicked out. This was back in the using days. Yeah, back in the, the active addiction. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to be able to say that I completed a, a program, you know, and I am somewhat, I, am I using the right word, paraprofessional, mm-hmm. um, is amazing. And it is only, only, only because of my recovery. Um, and that's, that's wonderful. So how does it feel when you help somebody through that process to, you know, take that one step a little bit further on the road? Um, so I, so I'm not like officially, since the houses have not opened yet, I haven't um, started like with the Woodrow project yet. Well, you have. You okay, have. I have. <laughs> okay. When I go, when yeah. I go on vacation. When, okay. Fair enough. Um, so Aaron has gone on vacation and I have, um, you know, uh, I guess been the sub mm-hmm. and, you know, done the check-ins at night, sat with the girls, talked to them, uh, you know, see how their day was going, um, progress on their personal goals. And it's, it's really, it was really wonderful to see that these women come and tell me um, they trust me with their feelings for the day, you know, how they were feeling that day. They trust me to not judge them, not tell anybody, you, you know, they just trust to share that with me and even to, you know, ask for my feedback. Um, you know, there was a long time people didn't want me to talk, let alone give them feedback. Um, you know, so it's, it's wonderful to be able to do that. Wow. That's terrific. Um, okay. 
So for the three of you, um, what advice would you have for families that have a loved one who's struggling with addiction that we haven't covered yet, we haven't gone through? So this could be related to your own experiences with recovery or recovery housing, whatever aspects. What, what additional advice would you have for, uh, for families? I think the biggest piece of advice that I would, would say is I was a person that did not have anybody else in my family that I was aware of that had any addiction issues whatsoever. So, and I was very much a closeted alcoholic and addict. Um, reaching out and asking for help also meant telling people that I had was an addict. Um, so it wasn't like there were a whole lot of people beating down my door saying, oh, you have to get help. Oh, you have to get help. It was me saying, I need help. And oh, by the way, the, all of these things are going in my life. People knew there were problems, but just didn't know what it was. So the advice I would give somebody is if somebody seems like they're struggling, ask the question. What's the worst they're going to say? But at least if you ask the question, they know that, they, that, that someone out there cares about them that somebody out there is going to be able to, if they at some point break through some of that denial, that you are willing to to help, that you are out there and maybe are somebody that they can turn to. And if somebody does go into treatment and comes out and relapses, that doesn't make them a bad person. That makes them a sick person. And just because somebody has an addiction doesn't mean that they can't ever get well that just means that they are a sick person. They need recovery. They need the medical treatment. They need the recovery support services. They need all of the best help that we can give them and to, to keep trying. Gina? Um, so something that was, that was really big when I first got sober and still continues to be really big is that my family does not hold over my head the things that I did when I was in my active addiction. Um, you know, I, you know, I did my best to make that amends and ask them how I could make it right, you know, early in my sobriety. And they said, just stay sober. Um, well, you know, as time went on, I would remember things from my active addiction that I did to them. And I would, you know, say, Hey, come sit down with me. You know, I really need to apologize for what I did. How can I make that right? And, uh, you know, this specific situation that we're talking about now. And my mom will say, Gina, stop. It's done. It's over. You are doing the right thing. You know, you are making up for it. Um, and and um, within the last maybe year and a half is when I, I realized that I, you know, I needed to try, stop trying to make up for those things and then just build from now to the future. You know, because I was, I was still trying to fix those I get, I'll use a metaphor, those buildings that I had broken down before, they were done. You know, those, I just needed to move on because they had already forgiven me. Um, and that, so that's a big part is just forgiveness. Andrea. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a slippery slope. Um, and I agree a lot with Aaron, although I do come from a somewhat different background because there is a lot of addiction that runs in my family. Um, I've lost two uncles to the disease one very recently. Um, so, you know, it wasn't a subject that my parents had no knowledge of. Um, and I think that they approached it 
as well as they could with the knowledge that they had, which is, you know, they shared their feelings with me. They shared how I was making them feel. They didn't tell me, you need to do this, you should do that. They just said, you are hurting me, essentially. And, you know, that was a huge thing in breaking me down to go into treatment because I just couldn't stand seeing what I was doing to my family. Um, and to Aaron's point, a lot of my extended family wasn't necessarily aware of what was going on because they just don't, you know, they don't live in the area or we just hadn't had contact in a long time. So they left that up to me as far as whether or not I wanted to, you know, come out with that. And that's something I've actually only done fairly recently because I felt stable in my own, you know, confident in my own program. Um, and going with that, you know, um, positive reinforcement when the family member does start, you know, whatever program they use, if they use a 12 step program, whatever it is, um, when they start, you know, turning their life around, my family has told me they are proud of me so many times in the past 11 months. And that feeling when I have nothing else, if I'm having a bad day, that feeling can sometimes just keep me going. So, you know, just constantly encouraging people in recovery to keep doing that. Yeah, that's great. So could I add one last thing? Absolutely. My family also did not bring alcohol around. We didn't do things that were alcohol infused. They were very supportive of So you mean events. as you went into recovery? Yes. Then they put so, the alcohol away. Yes. And they, normally it would be out. Not necessarily. They were never huge drinkers. I mean, we mm -hmm. would, there were, um, they, there, was, there were times that people would drink, but they made a conscious effort to not have lots of alcohol situations that were around. They really were very purposeful the first year of recovery to have fun events that I could participate in that were not surrounded with alcohol. And that was really important for me because I didn't have the opportunity for recovery housing. When I was in recovery, there wasn't a recovery house that anybody recommended for me to go to. So I didn't have that opportunity. And I am beyond grateful that I had the ability to, to live with my sister and brother-in-law who did not have any alcohol and obviously no drugs in the house. Um, and it was a sober environment for me, but that social part of it was really, um, I think that's one of the fundamental parts of recovery housing is that the social aspect of, of life. So regaining that, regaining the social aspect in a, in a very uh, healthy way. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, ladies, do you care to weigh in on how we do away with the stigma of opiate addiction in particular in our society? Any thoughts on that? You know, I think we just continue to speak out. Um, you know, I've had so many opportunities to be an advocate in the public eye, and I think we just have to continue to do that and show the variety. Like you said, Gina's so young, like we are working this old school seeming program, and we just have to speak out that you know, these are thing that, things that work and this could happen to anybody. It knows no boundaries. 
across race, gender, age, none of that. So we just have to like, you know, when we're comfortable, share our own experience and, you know, let that help people that may be kind of struggling or keeping quiet. Um, so recently there's been a lot of talk about there in Lorain County, there is a, a large lack of like medical services, detox for patients, et cetera. And, um, a lot of that is, you know, if you, um, you know, some people may react and say, well, I don't want it in my backyard. Well, guess what? It's in your backyard. It is in your neighbor's house. Like it's everywhere. You know, there, it knows, like Andrew said, it knows no bounds, you know, just, just because you, you know, are of a certain religion or a certain socioeconomic class, or, you know, you live on the other side of the tracks, it doesn't matter. It's everywhere. And, you know, unless we start being proactive and, you know, um, taking advantage of Kara when we can, you know, it's, it's only going to get worse. Aaron? I would say specific with opiates is the fact that educating doctors that Advil, aspirin, ibuprofen really do work for pain. I was amazed by that fact uh, when I first got into recovery and that I am not saying that there are not legitimate uses for opiates, but I hear of so many instances of young teenagers being re prescribed Overprescribed. Overprescribed significant amounts of opiates. This past spring, I had surgery, and every single doctor that I had was very well aware of my addiction and had a set protocol. We had a whole plan of how this was all going to happen. And I was given a certain amount of medication, somebody else held the medication. I didn't take the entire medication. It was exactly the way that it should be done for every single person, regardless of whether or not they have an addiction, because they are highly addictive and there is such a lack of education, even with this opiate epidemic. The four of us sitting here know that's an epidemic. There's tons of people out there that still don't and are still very unaware of the fact of how dangerous these, these drugs really are. Wow, this has really been informative. I want to thank the three of you. This has uh, really just been a, a, a great session. Well, thank you. This yeah. has been fantastic. We're really excited to be here. And I want to thank you for all the work that you've done. As I, I think we've talked a little bit, the fact that you are hitting so many different areas and so many different parts of recovery and segments of how addiction affects different people's lives is, is just amazing. Thank you, Aaron. Really appreciate that. Um, any final words before we sign off? I just want to thank you for coming also. You know, we, um, at least myself, I took it that, you know, I am an anonymous and I don't, I don't share my story, you know. Um, however, it's, I feel that it's a necessity. It is my duty now, you know, and so I just want to thank you for coming out and letting our voices be heard. Excellent. Thanks, Gina. Yeah, I'm on the exact same page. Um, it's just, it, this is as helpful for us as it is for you. You know, by speaking out, we are 
helping other people, but also gaining that confidence in ourselves. So yeah, it's really great to be here. Excellent. And congratulations to the three of you really on your progress. It's tremendous. And it's also an inspiration for people that hear your story. That's a big inspiration and that's terrific. We've been visiting today with Erin Helms, the executive director for the Woodrow Project, Recovery Housing for Women. And joining Erin and myself are Gina Bonaminio. Gina is now in recovery and successfully in recovery, and she's also a recovery support specialist. And finally, joining us was Andrea Kotnik. Andrea has been a resident of, um, of Erin's here in her recovery housing and um, again, I want to thank the three of you for joining me today. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. And please share this with someone you know. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover Two Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.